God, such a rookie mistake. Holy moly, I cannot believe I've been talking this whole time and it was muted. I I saw Kyle say, you're muted, you're muted, you're muted, everybody muting. And then uh, Michael's down here in the corner going, hey. <laughs> so let's try this again. Goodness gracious, I'm going to have to edit that out for the podcast. Um, we have a great show tonight. Michael Jones with Inspiring Philosophy. Uh, pretty famous at this point. Everybody knows who he is. Um, but uh, does a lot of good work. Um, I have benefited a lot over the years from his work. He's very thorough. Uh, he does um, some pretty cool videos. I'm going to have to find out um, where the editing comes in and all that. Uh, we're going to learn about a little bit about him and, and uh, what he's currently working on, the dating and uh, evidence for the exodus, which I am extremely uh, interested to learn about. Before that, um, a, a while back, I started the uh, Christian Content Creator Fund, CCCF. That's not enough for you there. Uh, and the purpose of it was there's uh, I've been blessed and I like to do this, uh, this as a, a passion, a hobby, ministry, however you want to look at it. And I've learned that it, it takes a lot of money to get started in content creating and to do good content creating the equipment and everything else. Um, with that said, uh, we've had a few donations uh, and we've already exhausted those uh, with uh, content creators who want to get started, need help and things like that. In the description, I have a Patreon link. If you want to donate monthly, dollar, two dollar more, uh, I have a um, GoFundMe set up until I find a better, uh, more solid platform for one-time contributions. I have um, entire. I've got an entire uh, uh, packet set up. What I do is I send them an application. They fill it out. Uh, kind of get a feel of you know, who they are, how they're, how committed they're going to be in all this. I have an entire spreadsheet um, to keep up with the finances. It's totally um, transparent. Any, anybody wants to know at any time, I'll give them the information, what money came in, what money went out. All that to say, it's not exclusive to Christians. Just as a Christian content creator and seeing so many Christians want to get started, I called it the Christian Content Creator Fund. So, um, if you feel compelled, give. If not, share it. Uh, let's try to get the fund up. So, because I've got quite a few people who are needing help. Uh, with that, I won't go on anymore. We're going to get to the intro here because after the intro, we're going to bring Michael on. I hope if he hadn't run away by now. But uh, thank you guys for being with us and uh, let's get started.
Welcome to the Brute Facts Podcast with your host and everybody's favorite Christian, Eddie Kroon. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the channel and hit that notification bell for future content. Thank you, Pasta Mike, for that uh, intro video there. I really appreciate it. Check him out over at Normalizing Atheism. Michael, how are you doing? Good. How are you doing? Oh, my goodness. We're going to get this figured out one way or another. I can tell you that. Uh, it's kind of <laughs> everything. I've had plenty of time. Get ready for everything. And uh, it just all fell apart at the end. Uh, uh, no so, worries. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you for joining us. Um, Tell us a little bit about yourself for those few people that's been under a rock and doesn't know <laughs> what you do and where you're from. So, yeah, I, um, my name is Michael Jones. I write Inspiring Philosophy, primarily YouTube channel. We make a lot of animated graphic style videos. Uh, we've branched out now on the TikTok. We're growing on there quite fast. I'm almost at 10,000 followers. I also upload videos to Facebook, uh, have a Twitter account as well. But generally, I make Christian apologetic videos. I go through a lot of detailed stuff currently working on a series over the Exodus. I got a video coming out this Friday on Ravi Zacharias and all of his horrible things he did. And then in August, I'll be starting a series on the documentary hypothesis and critiquing and challenging it. Mm, that sounds fantastic. You seem to be kind of all over the place. You kind of just bounce from one thing to another. Oh, um, yeah. I don't know how you have all the energy for it. I'm just... It's killing me. <laughs> I don't know. I don't. This is my passion. I love doing this kind of stuff. I love reading these kind of books. Uh, just going to keep going. After, eventually, after this, I'm going to start doing stuff on eschatology and responding to that objection that oh. I think is really bad. But, you know, the objection that Jesus predicted the world was going to end in his time. And I'm going to challenge that to you because I don't think he did. Yeah. Uh, eschatology is that's one thing. Um, I spent a lot of time debating against uh, dispensationalists and others for quite a while with this modern understanding and i just got tired of it i was like nah i just i can't do it it always comes down to well you just deny god's word and i'm like okay <laughs> <laughs> um so have you always been a christian or um how did you get into uh, i mean christianity itself and then what led you into the philosophy side of it? yeah so um I was raised in pretty fundamentalist church, you know, young earth creationism, dispensationalism, you know, rapture, all that stuff. And it was very, I got turned off on it really early. It was, it was, it was a basically slowly becoming a mega church. Uh, and the bigger it got, the more disillusioned I got with the place. Uh, I mean, I, when I started there as like a kid, we were having Sunday school and trailers. And by the time I'm in high school, they had a climbing wall built in the youth area. So that's how big they were growing. Uh, so I think about middle of high school, I sort of became agnostic. I never really was an atheist, more deistic. Uh, but uh, then, so I went through this phase where I wasn't really a Christian, started studying some things. I think just by fate, I ended up studying the really bad arguments against Christianity first as a young age, and I thought there weren't really good arguments. And then I started studying C.S. Lewis, a lot of the evidence for the reliability of the New Testament, the resurrection, and I slowly, uh, through my days later, came back to become a Christian. Ah, nice. Okay. Um, philosophy. What, what was it about philosophy that uh, interest, interested you the most? Uh, was it kind of like uh, with me, I just kind of got sucked into it and, and it was like one day, hey, here I am doing philosophy. 
Yeah, I think we all just sort of, a lot of us just sort of have a passion for that kind of stuff. I've always had a passion for studying history, philosophy, and science. I think what happened to me is that I started debating people on MySpace. So that tells you how old I am. It was wow. many years ago. And I'd be in the MySpace uh, message boards and going back with people. And that's how I sort of got into it. That destroyed the the phase when I had yet was a young earth creationist, lost that, uh, moved into old earth, and then eventually theistic evolution. But it was just a slow, gradual process for me. I don't think I ever really had like a shining light moment or anything like that. It's just always been a slow yeah. process. Yeah, that's kind of have, what happened with me. Fell in a few groups and and as a challenge, had no idea what they were talking about and was like, okay, what is this? What is this? And next thing you know, I am just um, like just immersed in it. Um, just can't get enough. The problem is so many different places to go in philosophy. Somebody that's ADHD like me, you're just kind of like, oh, I got to find something I like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So what got you interested in um, the evidence and dating of the Exodus? I know that's a pretty hot topic, at least in mm -hmm. on the Internet. You know, a lot of people are uh, constantly, oh, it's pretty much all yeah. the scholars say it didn't happen and, and all <laughs> these things. And I'm like, oh, but yeah, well, what got me interested in it was a documentary called Patterns of Evidence. I went and saw it in the theater when it came out. At the time, I was really studying New Testament. It was all New Testament. And I knew a little bit about the Old Testament. I loved studying Genesis, but I didn't know a lot about it in terms of that. After that, when it came out, when it, I think it was like 2013, 2014, I started diving into books, reading on it, the Exodus. And I was, I didn't find a lot of good evidence to support the Patterns of Evidence documentary. I started to reject that idea, moved to the early date view, which is around 1446 BCE, made a whole documentary on it, was totally wrong on it, uh, took it down, uh, then started working with Egyptologist David Falk. Uh, to put up the new version, which is the late date, so around the 13th century for Exodus. So it's it's something I've been studying for several, several years now. I've been changing my view on it now three times now, trying to find the most evidence where it is, where the evidence actually points to. Um, and I'd always say, I say we do have a ton of evidence. Um, I'd say the best evidence, that no one's, not as many people are, are interested in, is it, but it's the internal evidence of the Pentateuch. That is, I would say, is the best evidence for the Pentateuch. But what people really want is they want to know the archaeological evidence. And we, we do have a good fair amount of archaeological evidence for the Exodus. Yeah. That's um, so. Uh, well, that was what I was going to ask you if you were a late date guy or an early date guy, because I see a lot of um, uh, theologians and, and uh, scholarly theologians uh, that are, uh, you know, historians or biblical experts, things like that are more and more defending the early date uh, mm. in the 15th century. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of books that do that, like this book here, uh, Biblical or History of Israel by um, Walter Kaiser. He defends it. Uh, not well, though, to be honest. Um, I have not really used this book a lot after I read it. It's a big book, no, no doubt. Took me a while to read, but wasn't really impressed with it. Uh, some of the best evidence I saw for the early date was from people like Scott Stripling, Douglas Petrovich, uh, Titus Kennedy, and then the problem is they have they 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 kind of like led me astray and misrepresented a lot of the data, what it actually says on the ground. Mm. There's a lot of problems with some of their stuff. Uh, so that they make the best case for it, and I would rate it now that I have a better understanding of the data, like maybe a D minus, because that's how they just get a lot of things just flat out wrong, unfortunately. Wow. Yeah. So I've actually listened to lectures by uh, Petrovich um, and he uh, or presentations. And, and I mean, he paints this this 
really convincing kind of picture. Yeah. And then he fooled me. Yeah. And then you go, um, I, this is probably going to be on the uh, edge of being fallacious, but I'm very cautious of anybody that writes for answers in Genesis or (laughs) some of these other, you know, I'm just like, well, I think I'm going to move on to somebody else. Um, Yeah. It's a red flag for sure. Yeah. So I've been going through, I've actually been going through Michael Heiser's demons. Um, And so he defends the, you said the early date is what he. I I don't know. I've heard Heiser say different things. I've heard early date. I've heard late date. I've heard him try to defend David Roll's position. So I don't know. I think he bounces around. Mm, Okay. Yeah. Hmm. So. What do you so in that one of the issues that they talk about is uh, with the early and late dating um, is the what is it the absorption of the city with uh, Ramses was it the city of Ramses mm. that they call it yeah Ramses um, P Ramses, Ramses yeah yeah P Ramses right yeah. what's your take on that so the typical early date are so what it says in Exodus one is it says they built Pithom and Ramses. So it says the Hebrews were slaves and they built, they helped to build these cities. Okay. Well, that, that what the early day proponent will say is, well, they've updated the name when, when they were talking about it, uh, it was Avaris. And then later a scribe updated it to the current name, which was Ramses. Problem is, is that Avaris and Ramses are really not the same site. They're separated by about two kilometers. Uh, and it doesn't, it's not typical of updated place names. Uh, updated place name in the Bible would be like Genesis 14, 14, when it says like Abraham went into the land of Dan. Okay, it doesn't say he built some city called Dan. Uh, it says he went into this area that we know as Dan. It's like I can tell talk about how uh, the original Native Americans, the first peoples, crossed the Bering Strait. Well, no one called it the Bering Strait back then, but right. that's what we call it. We understand it. It'd be different if I said something like, you know, they helped build San Francisco. Okay, that would be factually, you know, incorrect. Uh, so Exodus 1 says they helped build Ramesses. That says they have to be present to actually do the act of building. It's not like Genesis 14, 14, where it says they came into this area that we call Dan. It says they helped build Ramesses. That Ramesses was not put into practice until the 19th dynasty took over, which is about the, around 1300, give or take. So that means the Hebrews still had to be there by about 1300 BCE. So right then and there, you don't have an early date for an Exodus because the early date is 1446 BCE. Some try to play around with the dates, move it up a little bit more, but you got to have them there to build Ramesses. We also know that during this time, the city of Pithom was was being built up by Ramesses. There are papyrus that attest to this. So right then and there, we have the two cities we know are being built on the Ramesses. That tells us the Exodus had to happen after the 19th dynasty got going and sometime during the reign of Ramesses, most likely during his reign. Yeah, um... Yeah, because I think one of the points he, uh, another one of the points he was making was um, uh, about uh, Ramses being the Pharaoh, being listed Ramses the second, I believe. Um, and he was trying to make a case for the semi-presence there through, like, for a long time where, where they just came to almost outnumber the people and, and things. He, what I was getting from it is um, that he seemed to, there seemed to be a lot of things there that had to fit, you know, just kind of nudge it in there 
so he can bring it all around to this this grand kind of um, presentation of okay, well now this is how we know this is um, uh, this is how we can know the dates. So he also brought up this the Stella um, that uh, was talking about I guess the conqueror over those that worship Yahweh or uh, the and I'm not sure how he tied that in to the, the early day. Yahweh. Yeah. Okay, so in, uh, in in basically what is now present-day Sudan, there is a temple in the southern Egypt that Amenhotep III built. So we're talking around, uh, give or take, around 1360 BCE or so. So it does it, it's still really kind of late uh, for what the early-day proponents want. Uh, this would mean, if the early-day was right, they would already be in Canaan, an established place. They would not be wandering. So it doesn't even really line up for the early-day. And it talks about the Shashu of, like, why... Uh, HW. It's not really definitively Yahweh. One thing I've learned is that a lot of Egyptologists debate about what that meant. It could have be it could be referring to a group, could be referring to a place, could be referring to a deity. Uh, we don't really know. It's not definitively saying Yahweh, but it also says they're in Edom. Okay, hmm. we know from the biblical account the 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 children of Israel didn't go to Edom. They had to go around it. They couldn't get through there. So we know they weren't even in that region. So how do you do that? If it is referring to Yahweh, it may just, you know, we know that the Edomites were, to, from the biblical account, they were, according to biblical account, they were descended from Abraham. Abraham worshipped Yahweh. So they could very well have worshipped Yahweh there. We know that the Yahweh was worshipped in Adam in the Iron Age. Uh, it's from other inscriptions that attest to it. So it could very well be referring to Edomites worshipping Yahweh, but it's not referring to the children of Israel. It doesn't align with the early date. Uh, the early date would have them the wandering period ending around 1406. This inscription dates to around again 1360, give or take, sometime around in there. So this is already this would be after the early date for the conquest. And again, it doesn't it cannot be referring to the children of Israel because it's referring to people in a dumb. So it doesn't really work. Mm -hmm. So what would be the significance of the dating? What would what would hinge on the early versus late dating? What do you mean? Like, what are the what what would hinge? What, what, what is the motivation forward? to want to put it earlier? What is well, uh, it's it's because there is a verse in I believe it's First Kings where it says um, Solomon built a temple 480 years uh, after the Exodus. Mm -hmm. So they go, well, that's about you know 966. Let's just add 480. You get 1446. Boom, we got it, guys. That's the date. Uh, and so they what they don't understand though is that in the ancient Near East. They use number, numbers symbolically. I knew this while I even held to an early date. And so this wasn't like a key feature for me. I even admitted, like, I, you know, it's give or take. I'm not going to hold to a specific exact time because mm -hmm. the Hebrews loved round numbers. They love using symbolic numbers. So we have like temples like Tikulti Ninurta, the first, declares 720 years elapsed since the initial construction of the Temple of Ishtar by Ilushuma. Okay, it wasn't exactly that. But you get the idea that they're using round numbers. They like using these symbolic numbers. Uh, so in that culture, number 60 was very important. But in the Canaan, 40 was more important. So 40 times 12, you get 480. That's what they're trying to do. It's a symbolic number to show total completion from Exodus to currently. Same thing happens in Egypt with temple dedications about the temple of Set and additional things. We just see this all over the ancient Near East. There's temple dedications. They use these round numbers. It's not giving you an exact timeline. They weren't interested in that kind of thing. So that's the motivation for holding to the early date. 
the motivation for holding to the late date is the fact that uh, the biblical text says they were there to be to build Ramesses, P. Ramesses. So they have to have been there by about 1300 BCE to still be slaves. So on that, I haven't done a, a, a ton of study in this area. Um, I am interested in um, ancient Hebrew cultures, um, the ancient Hebrew language. And it seems from my experience that it's almost a division of biblical literacist, uh, literalist from those who don't hold to a strict literalism. Um, is that, is that kind of been what you've noticed along or, or? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to hold to a strict literalism with the Bible. I mean, Exodus four says that if you're going to take it literally, it's you're going to get some weird interpretations. So Moses would have been in Midian for 40 years. You know, he's got 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in Midian, 40 years with the children of Israel wandering. Okay. At Exodus four, he's about to return to Egypt. So he's supposed to be 80 at this point. And he had children, he got married and had children there. So he's supposed to have been there for 40 years. Exodus 4 says he took a donkey, he put his wife and his two sons on the donkey and went back to Egypt. So he took his two adult sons and his wife and put them on a single donkey. Um, maybe that 40 years is not literal. It's a symbolic number. Maybe it's not really that he had two adult children who didn't have any children of their own yet. <laughs> and maybe they're, he, they're actually very young when he's going back to Egypt. It's not an exact 40. And we see this 40 in the Bible often just represents like a general time period. It doesn't really refer to an exact 40 year period. Yeah. Well, on that note, that, that kind of a little uh, a side note. Um, so a lot of the discussions I have talking to um, literalists or those that lean towards, uh, you know, literalism is that a lot of times we seem to not approach uh, the ancient Hebrews as an ancient culture, an ancient language. And we have a storytelling culture. And when you tell stories, you build pictures with images. And when they developed their language, they didn't stop building uh, pictures with images. Or, or it, it, That's how the original Hebrew was kind of predicated. And like you were talking about, the uh, symbolism of numbers all the way through up until the gematria. I mean, they, there's always been this fascination. If anybody does even a little reading or study into Kabbalism, it's insane. The amount of, of symmetry that is there between the alphabet and the, the numbers and all of these figurative numbers and, and what they mean. And on a side note, a lot of people who want to deny that, uh, in the ancient Hebrews or something like that, or, or the Old Testament, didn't have an idea of this Trinitarian kind of God. You you cannot go into any type of Kabbalism, mysticism, or anything like that without seeing the enormous amount of representations of the number three. I mean, it's just it is just replete through there. So just kind of a side tangent, but yeah, that's. I think we this whole modern 21st century view, we just kind of press that on there. Yeah. And it gets us into Never all kinds much. of trouble. Yeah, it, it definitely happens. Uh, I did a whole video on Genesis 5 where I just went through all the numbers and they're the ages and just try to argue, guys, these are not literally ages. 
these are not the literal ages. If you just compare this to the ancient Near Eastern context, it's not internal context, these are not literal ages. So when it comes to the Exodus, we got to go on what the evidence says, the internal biblical evidence uh, and the external evidence. And all the external evidence points to a Ramesite dating. Uh, same with the internal evidence. It talks about the toponyms that the book of Exodus use points to a Ramesite period. Uh, timing, again, time of Ramesses, it points to that. Yeah, it kind of, you know, on that note, um, you had mentioned the the numbers and, and what they symbolized and like, you know, kind of completeness and things like that. And that's one of the things that is extremely noteworthy about the ancient Hebrew languages. Their verbs weren't tensed like ours. Their verbs were incompleteness. That's how they viewed pretty much everything. I mean, it, it was just their language was kind of built on this idea of incomplete, incomplete. Um, and I think that that, I mean, it's just more of a testament to how they viewed it and, and how they wrote about it than how we approach it. Yeah, yeah, it, it is definitely that case. Uh, we are constantly misreading the text with our own Western understanding. Uh, their, their language is very much verb dominated, whereas ours is noun dominated. We identify subjects first, they would identify verbs first. Right, absolutely. So you had mentioned uh, earlier, you kind of piqued my interest, because one of the things I hear quite often is, um, like I said earlier, oh, the scholars say they don't even believe it happened and all this. And there's no, and, and I hear all the time, there's no archaeological evidence. Mm. And, and you had stated that there was archaeological evidence. Um, yeah. so what would be some of those evidences? Well, let's go through a little bit of this right now. So we know that they settled in the land of Goshen, which would have been in the Nile Delta. It would have been around the city called Avaris. Uh, it, Basically, most scholars believe, based on the Joseph account, they would have moved in during uh, the time of around 1600 or so, 1700. So this is during the Hyksos dynasty, 15th dynasty of Egypt. Their capital was a city called Avaris in the Nile Delta. Joseph likely would have been a vizier in that, uh, for that dynasty at that city, uh, and the Hebrews would have settled in and around Avaris. Okay, so they're there. When the 15th dynasty fell, the Hyksos fell to the 18th dynasty, so... 18th dynasty comes up from the south, Thebes, they take over. Uh, we know that the population of Avaris was treated like a foreign uh, foreign enemy. The uh, uh, inscriptions of um, Amos, son of Abana, to testify that uh, population, that people at Avaris were turned into slaves. So Avaris was treated like foreign enemy. They were turned into slaves, and they were ruled over by the 18th dynasty quite harshly, according to the biblical account. So... Uh, we know the 18th dynasty used slaves in terms of brick making. Uh, certain texts have put people that. So we need to. So the population of Avaris is where we need to look at. There was no evidence of a mass exodus from Avaris when the 18th dynasty took over. So around 14, around 1540 BCE. So there's no evidence of an exodus at that point. The population stayed there, and probably the elites were kicked out. So we have this big Semitic population that we can see from the archaeological evidence at Avaris there. Now, that population stayed there pretty much up until about middle of the 13th century, so around the middle of 1200s BCE. Then all of a sudden, the site is abandoned. It's, it's emptied. And the Ramazide dynasty, the people from P. Ramazes, start using the site as a graveyard. So we don't know where the Semitic population went, but they're no longer there, and they, the site was being used as a graveyard. Now, about 40 years later, 
in Canaan, things start to happen. Hazor is burned. Okay, so that's one of the cities the Bible mentions that they burned. Hazor is definitely burned. The statues are mutilated in an Israelite fashion. So uh, archaeologists have worked on the site have said they were sort of the, the, the cultic statues were mutilated there, which is weird uh, because if the Canaanites did this, the local Canaanites did it, or the Egyptians did this, why would they mutilate the statues of their own god? Uh, the Sea People was another possibility. These were invaders coming in around the same time. The Philistines were a group of the Sea People. They settled along the coast, but they never made it as far into to Hazor. So question then becomes is who mutilated the statues? Well, what is it? Uh, ben Tor, Amon Ben Tor says this, and I quote, says this leaves us with the Israelites. So it's very, so most likely candidate as to who destroyed Hazor would have been the group known as the Israelites, according to them. This is about 40 years or so, give or take, after a virus has basically been abandoned and turned into a graveyard. So interesting correlation there. Also around the same time, something crazy is happening in Canaan. There is a population boom. So some sites, uh, like in the Fram Samaria region, uh, we're talking like sites double by like five times. So uh, uh, in uh, so sites are sort of popping up, like in Manasseh, Ephraim region, the region of Benjamin, Jordan Valley. I mean, sites are just rapidly increasing, and they're increasing rather quickly. This is not like a slow buildup. It's like late Bronze Age, beginning of Iron Age, boom, population explosion. Uh, now, there are archaeologists still deny an exodus and try to interpret this as different Canaanites moving and shifting around the region. I'm not convinced of that, but and I, I can explain why. But generally, what? let me just recap. So we have... Uh, population of Avaris is enslaved. They stay there till about the midway through the Ramazide period. Sites abandoned. About a generation or so later, Hazor is burned, and there's a huge population of explosion in Canaan. So, and this is admitted by archaeologists like um, uh, like Baruch Halpern, uh, William Deaver even admits there was this population explosion. In fact, I'm going to use him in my upcoming video to argue this. Uh, th there was this all of a sudden, this huge amount of people that just sort of showed up. They interpreted it as Canaanites that were Canaanites that were living like semi-nomadic lives, invisible to archaeological traces, and then they settled down. It seems like a kind of kitchen response and says it's kind of weird and ad hoc. It seems more likely this is an influx of outsiders because there's just so many people that show up. Uh, but there's a little bit sneak peek of kind of like you see a little bit of the data. Uh, if you have any questions, go or I can give you more data even for that. Yeah, well, <clears throat> speaking of the population, one of the things that almost uh, inevitably comes up is um, the if there was an exodus, it couldn't have been as big as what the Bible had stated it was. Um, what would be your response to that? True. Uh, yeah. uh, no, <laughs> even very conservative uh, uh, Egyptologists like Kenneth Kitchen, and James Hoffmeyer, except it was probably around 30 to 1,000. David Fox says maybe around 100,000. And here's the reason is because the word for a thousand in the Bible is often used to refer to just a group or unit, a tribe, a military unit, these kinds of things. It doesn't necessarily refer to a thousand. It's sort of like our English word grand. Mm -hmm. You know, a grand can mean a thousand, but can also mean great or you know, big. Uh, grand old time can mean a good thing. So that's kind of how the uh, Hebrew word for a thousand works. So I think Kitchen estimates around 30,000 or so for the Exodus. Uh, again, you can maybe get around 100,000, but no one thinks it was around 2 million unless you're very conservative. And that fits with the population changes we see from 
Bronze Age to Iron Age. Yeah, it seems like if two million people walked out of a city, it would like destroy the economics and everything of that city. It seems like, you know, a population that size. Um, but like you were talking about, that's such an excellent point because we can actually see uh, the symbolic use of a thousand all the way through even the New Testament where it talks about on a thousand hills. I'm going to make people angry, but Jesus reigning for a thousand years, you know, all these different things. It's like if, if you understand uh, any kind of idea of the, the symbolism and the numerology, I guess, is it would they call it the numerology? Is that a different uh, kind of yeah. study? Well, well, they just use them for symbolic purposes. I mean, it's just it's yeah, like if okay. you said your wife is a 10. You don't mean she's literally 10. You mean she is a, you know, your symbolic meaning for really attractive. And for the record, my wife is 110, um, <laughs> so I don't get beat up later. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, yeah, I, I'm not going to harp on that one, but yeah, that's, I mean, it, excellent point. Um, but with that, and then I'll let you go on with the rest of them is when we hear about, let's say it's 30,000 to 100,000, it seems within the desert, we would have some kind of, or this is what you typically hear. Uh, some kind of uh, pottery or, or maybe weapons or tools or things like that. One of the explanations I heard, I didn't really investigate it a whole lot, was actually at that time, a lot of the Sinai was actually covered in, in water or it wasn't as all dry desert um, as we see it today. Is that, is, is that something that you've run across in that explanation or... So there were there were there was more of the Red Sea that went kind of further north in like these reeds area. So there was like these freshwater parts that probably where the crossing of the, of the Red Sea happened was in the reeds of the northern part. Uh, so yeah, there was a lot more. But when you got more into the uh, eastern part of Sinai, it was mostly desert there. Uh, but closer to Egypt, there was a lot more water from what we can gather. Okay. All right. So with the other uh, the other evidences what um what else is it uh, building off okay of that? well let's talk about jericho everybody's like oh but well, you know jericho wasn't destroyed at this time guys end of yeah. story jericho is the first city uh so checkmate no exodus uh so let's talk about jericho uh latest reports on jericho have come out <clears throat> by lorenzo nigro he was uh 2020 paper came out here's what he he noted so well maybe i should do a little bit of history here so when John Garstang first excavated Jericho, he estimated there was a 14, a destruction around 14 BCE, 1400 BCE. Made many early day proponents pretty excited. Kathleen Kenyon shows up. She says, no, this is actually 1550 BCE. We got to push it back. So way too early for even the early day. Um, Bryant Wood, some of the early day proponents really try to like argue, no, no, it, it, it's definitely the destruction. Kenyon was wrong to date it that late or that early. It's actually 1400. They've not really done a good job of convincing most archaeologists. Most accept that's 1550. Like the overwhelming majority accept it was 1550. So uh, that sort of throws that, that argument out of the water. So we didn't really find evidence of a second destruction. But what's interesting is John Garsting said there wasn't a second destruction on his view. He identified a building called the Middle Building, which he says was burned at a later date. So even his own survey suggested there was a second destruction after the 1550 destruction. And Kenya never contradicted that, although she didn't really go too much into that. 
So, but they didn't really find much more evidence of it. Kenya didn't find a lot of evidence to confirm that idea. Well, why? Well, recently Lorenzo Nairo was at the site and when he was excavating there, he realized something. Uh, there was a lot of site leveling that happened at the site. What is that? Well, basically later builders during like the Byzantine, Hellenistic, Iron Age time, they cut into the late Bronze Age layers, removing those layers for archaeologists <clears throat> to find. So it's not that there's no evidence of a destruction. It's the layers were removed and by later builders, later occupants that lived on Jericho and removed them from archaeologists to find. So that was the biggest problem. But what's interesting, though, is that Nigro did find some interesting stuff. He did find that the site was still occupied after the 1550 destruction. It was rebuilt with a mud uh, brick structure that was fortified. Uh, but then the mud brick structure seems to go away in the 11th century BCE. So after the 1200s, he says, and I quote, Iron Age 1 was detected only in a few places on Spring Hill. Diagnostic ceramic material was dated to the 11th century BC. It may be related to a rural village that rose out of the ruins of the late Bronze City. So what does that mean? So cover all that. 1550, city of Jericho is destroyed. They rebuilt a mud brick structure on top of that. That mud brick was there through the 1400s, 1300s, 1200s. The layers were cut in by later builders, so we don't know exactly what happened. But for some reason, that mud brick fortified structure went away and it was replaced by a rural village. We don't know how, but it's what happened because, again, site leveling. Well, that fits with the biblical account. It talks about Joshua's destruction. Then after in the book of Judges, Jericho is referred to as the city of Palms. Uh, doesn't not talk about it like a fortified structure, just like a village kind of thing. So. Very likely, uh, the second destruction that Garstang was talking about very well could have been a second fiery destruction that occurred. Uh, this mud brick fortified structure went away probably at the end of the 1200s. We don't know for sure because Nigro, again, he's still excavating, working on the site. More work on the site needs to be done. But the, per, these reports that are now coming out do seem to at least fit with the biblical account. There was a fortified structure. Joshua comes in. And then after that period, rural village. So Jericho has been a thorn in the side for Exodus opponents for a long time, but these latest reports are actually good news for us. They are actually are showing that there may have been something that happened, although we can't prove it because, again, site leveling. Hmm. Interesting. What about the claims that, that we can actually see fire damage in oh. the ruins of Jericho? Well, we can see fire da damage in the ruins of Hazor, and there definitely was fire damages in the 1550 destruction. That one cannot be the destruction of Joshua because uh, Nigro also notes there's evidence that battering rams were used. Joshua didn't use battering rams. So um, that, that 1550 destruction, the, the fiery destruction happened then that Brian Wood wants to say is so hard as Joshua's destruction doesn't work. Not only that, it's the wrong wall. Uh, the wall that you need in the, in the, 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 uh, uh, the biblical account needs to be something called a casemate wall. Casemate wall is two walls. You've got an inner wall and an outer wall. And then you build houses in between them. Well, Rahab's house was in the city wall. The wall at the 1550 destruction was a Cyclopean wall. It's a single wall. You couldn't have rooms in them. You could have like maybe a, you know, a walkway, but no rooms. So again, the 1550 destruction cannot be that. Now we don't have, we cannot show evidence of a fiery destruction around 1200 BCE because again, site leveling, they, they, this, the, the uh, layers have been, basically cut in by later builders and we don't know exactly what happened there he says he says 
to quote, the overall stratigraphy of Tel S. Sultan through time may explain why late Bronze Age layers were mostly preserved all around the Tel on its flank, but were almost completely cut away from its top by Iron Age, Roman, Hellenistic, and Byzantine building activity. Hmm. One of the things that kind of came to mind when you were talking about that, like with Joshua's conquest, one of the uh, critical or, or some of the critical scholars you were talking earlier about the dismemberment of the false gods in, in cities. Uh, it was, I guess, by uh, the Hebrew people or attributed to uh, the Israelites. Um, because one of the critical responses is, well, when we look at the archaeological evidence of Joshua's conquests, uh, one of the cities along the path doesn't have evidence of being um, overtaken. It looks more like an insurrection from within. And they were talking about because of the mutilation that was done to all the false god statues that are in there. And I'm like, what you were talking about earlier, if that's something that was attributed to uh, the Jewish people and something that they did, or was it common practice period when they like kind of ransacked a, a place? Well, when you, here's the thing, Joshua's conquest does not say they burned tons and tons of cities in Canaan. Mm -hmm. It says, for example, Joshua 11, 13, 14 says, but none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn except Hazor. So it's talking about the cities in the north. They didn't burn those cities. It directly says they just left them alone. Why? Well, well, because the Bible tells us uh, that God was going to bring them into homes that they did not build, vineyards they did not plant. They were meant to take over the cities and kick out the inhabitants, not to burn and kill at literally everything. So it was exaggerated war language throughout Joshua, like hyperbolic exaggeration. Right. But they only says they burned three cities, Jericho, Ai, and Hazor. Ai is a small, really, really small site based on what the biblical account says. Uh, so the only three we should really be looking for are those. Hmm. And so far, Jericho and Hazor look pretty good. I is so small that it may not even left behind any evidence. People don't realize that erosion, later occupants can destroy a lot of this evidence. Yeah. And I is sort of spoken of as this really tiny, this little, little site that probably didn't even have walls. It was sort of outside of Bethel that they attacked. Uh, and we don't even know what the structures would have been on that site. So it's very unlikely to have been a massive destruction like Jericho or Hazor. So what is the critical response to the idea of um, Jericho and kind of being resettled and, and um, the cut-ins and, and later, is that well, something? A lot of this stuff is really new, so I don't know of any of the, the real critical oh, responses okay. yet. I mean, this Nigro just came out with this stuff like, you know, two years ago. Uh, and again, it's not saying it proves the biblical account, but it does align with right. it. It does explain why we couldn't find any evidence of a destruction around Joshua's time, site leveling. So at least it just fits with it. It just, it at least aligns with the biblical account. Man, that's a lot to chew on. This is, um, so, you know, just kind of going over it and going through it over the years, just kind of hit or miss. It's uh, a lot of new stuff there uh, that, I, you know, really haven't um, spent a lot of time uh, jumping into. Is this uh, something that um, Dr. Falk is working on? We're working on it together. We oh, okay. released parts one and two of Exodus Rediscovered. Part three will be out in July. That'll be on the conquest. 
And there's a lot of data to cover on that. Uh, so parts one came out in March, part two came out in April, or sorry, part one came out in March. And then yeah, part two came out in April and the last part will come out in July, I believe. Uh, so work on a lot of stuff. There's a lot of data too. Like I mentioned the population boom that happened in Canada around the same time that Jericho transfers attrition to a small town, Hazara is destroyed. Uh, these new Iron Age one sites, the population explosion, they lack pig bones. There was no pig bones at these sites. You know what also lacked Ooh. pig bones? The city of Avaris before it was abandoned. That's uh, th that is definitely an interesting fact. Um, given the uh, yeah, that's that's odd. So, how far back uh, through the uh, archaeological digs? I mean, is it common to see? different animals throughout the, the bones of different animals throughout uh, uh, the different periods of time. Oh yeah. Yeah. They were, I just read a study recently on how pig bones started to show up again later in the iron age in uh, the kingdom of Northern Israel. So just before their exile, but what, what does the Bible tell us? Well, they started to rebel and they started to worship other gods. And we start to see slowly like during like the beginning of the iron age, that area lacked pig bones. And then slowly up to about iron age two, the study was saying oh, pig bones start coming back again in this region. Odd. No, I mean, follow biblical account, you would expect to find that. Uh, you know, we can find traces of animal bones very far back, further back than even what the biblical record is recording. It's just, you're able to find these types of things. Like, they're studying uh, the Philistine sites, and they can find that they brought some animals in from Europe, uh, their own, that they can able to study and determine that they were brought in from outside. Man, yeah, so for those that are listening that, that that's not understanding the significance of that, um, one of the, uh, competing views, I think is the most uh, plausible view to understand the dietary laws and things like that is to actually separate them from the surrounding culture, surrounding culture. So they couldn't be in the festivities and things like that. So they were like, literally the only people that didn't eat pigs, uh, everybody else around there did. So to have these settlements with no swine bones i mean that's that's huge uh yeah it definitely stands out it definitely stands out because the, the philistines on the coast did have pigs around the same time and previous uh i uh late bronze age sites did have traces of pig bones but the moment this population explosion happens pig bones just disappear in the hill country which is where israel settled so is um is dr falk going to is this something that he's working on to release a book or, or some kind of academic? Um, I think uh, he should release a whole book on this. That'd be great if he did. Um, I don't know what his plans are, but it would probably sell really well if he just went through all of this stuff that we've been going through in the documentary. So he's helped me write the script for part one, part two, and part three. And part three is now in the review process. So uh, that should be out July. Uh, but we're going through all the data I could possibly find. Um, awesome. That's... Um, well, the problem is when I get over to your channel, um, I kind of go off on these rabbit trails uh, of <laughs> different phil philosophical things. Um, and I uh, didn't even really uh, look for that specific series. I thought it was one you were actually coming up with. So I feel like an idiot to not know it's already got a couple of parts released. Because um, well, I Well, here's the thing, though. Part three will be the best. Part three will have the uh, most evidence. That's focusing on the conquest. And I have only scratched the surface here 
of the evidence we have for the Exodus. We have got so much evidence. And I, at the end of part three, I'm going to list from all of the parts, all the evidence in a big one list. And I'm going to say, what is more likely that later myth makers made up the Exodus and just happened to get all these things right, or they got a reliable account handed down to them. And I'm talking like, when, like I'm talking like I got dozens of data points from internal and external evidence. Yeah, that's uh, um, looks like fans back. Uh, that that's a great point because it, it, the irony here is having to talk to the skeptics, uh, or not skeptics in general, but the skeptics about the Exodus and things like that, and about the principle of parsimony. Yet, when we go to these other areas, well, what's what's simpler? What's uh, the principle of parsimony, Occam's razor? And I'm like, well, why why are we not applying that over here? I mean, if there's not a direct defeater, if there's not something. Oh, sorry. Finish your thought. No, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to say is like, well, here's the thing. None of this would prove God. It just proves the biblical account is reliable. Okay. right. Okay, you can have a totally naturalistic understanding. Just there were there were some there were a group of like lower class slaves at Avaris. Uh, all of a sudden, a bunch of plagues happened. They interpreted it as their God calling them into the desert, so they left. Then they resettled in Canaan, started Israel. Okay, I don't see why skeptics are like anti or you know anti theists or non Christians are so skeptical they can't even accept that may it just happened, like. Why, why, why not? I mean, there's a lot of evidence pointing to it, especially now. Uh, why not just say that? Yeah, I, 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 right. And that's kind of going into the whole um, uh, the Jesus mythicism thing. It's, it's just kind of, I'm just stunned at how it's kind of catching on. Um, I'm like, you're not conceding theism. You're not conceding Christianity. All you're conceding is that there was a historical Jesus. It doesn't mean... You could be like uh, the West Star Institute, the, the, the Jesus Seminar. You could take all these different positions and say he's not divine. He's a great moral teacher and all these things. And, and it seems to be like a lot of skeptics put this wall up and they're like, no, if we can see this, it's kind of like a slippery slope. Well, then we got to concede this. We got to concede that. And it's like the end of the day, man, you don't have to concede theism. They bring up all the... <laughs> A lot of them are just are just skeptical beyond skeptical. Like I, I know one I forget how to pronounce her name, but it's like a long name. But she still denies David existed, and it's like we have we have the inscriptions stating how the house of David. Like, just accept he was a yeah. real historical person. Like, are you seriously going to deny this? It's yeah, ridiculous we, at this point. It's I think we, there's a Stella that has uh, the inscription, I believe, about uh, David on it or, or the house of David, like you were talking yeah, tell about. Tell Dan inscription. Yeah. Yeah. Tell yeah. The there you go. And the Moabite yeah. steel they mentioned that I believe as well. Yeah. The, one of the victories over, uh, was it one of the victories over the, the David's, uh, kingdom or, or the people or something was written into another. Mm-hmm. Is that the same Stella I'm thinking about? Or was that? I think uh, so. Moabite steel. Yeah. When Moab. When oh, Moab the Moabite. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, 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 right. I think that's the one it is. Kitchen mentions three inscriptions in his book. Uh, on the reliability of the Old Testament that he says mentioned uh, David. Uh, so, I mean, at this point, he's attested in his archaeological record. I, I don't I don't see why there are still very, very liberal scholars that deny the existence of David, but they exist. 
And, you know, it's like it gets to the point now where it's like, OK, are we really being charitable with the Bible? Yeah. Yeah. That's what's well, funny because of the response you usually get when I when I talk about. So the, the, my approach to scripture is um, I'm not an academic, but it's more like an academic approach. I want to look at the cultural context, the historical context, literary context, all of it to try to see exactly what was trying to be conveyed and what would have been meant at that time. And so when I start talking about the different genres of the book, I'm like, yeah, and some are historical in this. And it's like, eh, there's no history there. And I'm like, they have passed this on as the history of their people. You can deny whether it's historical or not. The genre is meant to be a history or historical. So mm -hmm. if you had to wrap it up in a shotgun style, don't, of course, don't give away what you're going to give on the later parts. Um, what would you say coming away from everything you discussed today? Um, kind of build a small picture of, of, of the evidence that you gave today. Okay. So uh, during the late bronze age, Canaan was really like low populated. Uh, we know that the Egyptians were even going in like Amenhotep II, Thutmosis III, and they were taking a bunch of the Canaanites back to Egypt to serve as slaves. So very depopulated time period. Uh, we know that the city of Avaris was where a lot of these Semitic people were. Uh, and then all of a sudden the city is abandoned around the Ramesside period. Uh, I, I didn't mention this in the documentary, but because a lot of the graves at Avaris were destroyed by later agriculture leveling on there. So we don't know. But it, it is kind of weird that they all of a sudden needed to use the site as a graveyard. It's like a lot of people died, maybe. Interesting little correlation there. But I didn't mention that because, again, graves were destroyed. We don't really know entirely. But site is abandoned. About 40 years later... On the biblical in Canaan, population boom. These new sites lack pig bones. Hazor is destroyed. Jericho transitions. Uh, they lack pig bones, as I said. New cultic sites show up, like Shiloh and Ebal. A lot of really interesting correlations just sort of align right there. That doesn't prove God exists, but it, it does show the biblical account is reliable. And I've not even scratched the internal evidence, the Pentateuch showing that it does have an Egyptian origin. It does have a lot of Egyptian correlations, like Egyptian loan words, Egyptian names, Egyptian customs and practices in it that later uh, scribes or, or uh, authors could not have made up unless they were familiar with the Egyptian world. Uh, so, I mean, there's just a lot of good evidence to point to that. Why would we say that Israel started as internal Canaanite changes when we have no ancient texts that attest to that? And we have Israel's own ancient records which say they came out of Egypt. Why would we deny that? Posit a theory that has no textual witness. Doesn't make any sense. It, the Exodus most likely did occur. Yeah. Given the principle of parsimony. <laughs> well, that's it. I'm convinced, man. Great job. Uh, no, I, I it, typically because I don't like to get into the discussions online and I'm not an expert on it, you know, because I think there's a bigger um, issue there than whether the exodus happened or not. So usually I'll say, okay, I'm agnostic on it. So I will say when that? I, when I get to the, um, in terms of internal evidence, I'll have oh, like over 30 points in terms of internal evidence in terms uh -huh. of external evidence. I have about 19 points from exodus to conquest supporting the exodus account. So I have uh, in the documentary, part three, I will cover a lot of data, especially for the conquest, but a lot of internal evidence as well from Exodus to Joshua supports that what they're handing out is a reliable account.
Yeah. I think your buddy in the background wanted to get in the camera shot. Oh, that's my cat. Yeah. Yeah, she's she's kind of spaz. Uh, and I do gotta give a special shout out because uh my uh my buddy here who has done so much to help promote my show, um uh, is in the audience, super famous myth vision, Derek. Oh yeah, super uh, famous. I'm coming <laughs> to the documentary hypothesis after I do the Exodus. Going to critique it and challenge it a little bit, uh, but well, maybe I'm glad you said that. Horrible. I'm glad you said that because if you got time for a couple of questions, there were a few questions. Um, yeah, sure. And, and I think uh, Ethan over at Spartan was kind of alluding to a uh, documentary hypothesis. So let's see. We've got. Uh, it wasn't too many of them. Um, I will. I will say the video on the documentary hypothesis is going to be part one. I've recorded the VO for that. I've not started editing it yet, but that video is 43 minutes long because there is a lot of data to cover that challenges the documentary hypothesis. I've read a lot of books on it. I'm very interested in that hypothesis. Uh, I have a lot of, I ha after reading a lot of books, I have a lot more respect for it though, too. Like reading Joel Baden and Richard Elliott Friedman, Jeffrey Teague's book, Empirical Models from Local Criticism. I've, I've gained a, a whole new respect for it, even though I think it's wrong. I think I think it's a good hypothesis, but it has too many problems with it. I hold to more of a supplementary slash fragmentary hypothesis. Yeah. Uh, but there's a lot of data to cover on that alone, and I'll be releasing that hopefully in August if I can get it edited because it's just so much. I'm with you. I, I got so much stuff I have to edit, and I'm just like, oh, I actually like doing it, but it gets so mundane, and it just you know because it's just so much of it. Being OCD. Um, one editing session that should take an hour or two take me about six hours maybe longer sometimes i get frustrated and just close it and start over <laughs> uh so one of the best questions of the night is from my buddy travis why is swinburne so incredibly based i yeah that's an answer I, a question i can't answer he i mean is. because he's swinburne it just he, he just is he is the greatest in my view one of the greatest philosophers of our time and i don't I, think We'll realize that until he passes passed away, but he definitely is. I agree a hundred percent. He is a uh, is absolutely um, a genius, uh, great mind. Oh, let's see. I think he covered that, Ethan. Basically, uh, hold middle ground. Uh, here we go. With the, couldn't some parts of the Exodus narrative be from the earlier date and some from the late? It, it's possible it could there could have been a couple exoduses i mean that's that's a view the problem is we just don't have any evidence of the early date kind of thing happening and again if you look at population changes in canaan around the 1400s there is no changes there's no changes in egypt as well at avaris if it was it had been so small they wouldn't have left any detections yeah that's uh if anybody else has any questions fire them away now or i'm going to shut it down on you um, I think there's one towards the bottom. Oh, what did I miss? Oh, is well, there's a supplementary hypothesis. Oh, he called it. Oh, Good job. So, Derek. supplementary hypothesis is this idea that the Pentateuch was original corpus and it was sort of supplemented, redacted, and changed over time. That is generally the hypothesis I hold to. However, I also hold to sort of like a fragmentary hypothesis. This is the view that the Pentateuch is of various fragments that sort of were collected and put together these different oral traditions, maybe different texts were put together when collected in the Pentateuch. 
Generally, this is what I say. I think that's how the, the, the original corpus of the Pentateuch was put together. Fragments, different oral traditions that uh, people were working with. I'm not ready to say an exact date on when that started yet, though. I am still undecided. Although I'm, I do think David Carr makes some interesting arguments in his book, The Formation of the Hebrew Bible, that it dates to around, it started around the time of Solomon. Interesting. Uh, not sure where I want to stand yet on that. But so generally my, the my thesis is this. My hypothesis is this, is that uh, there was the, the original corpus of the Pentateuch was put together by collecting fragments, oral traditions. Then that corpus was supplemented and updated over time. Um, it probably did not reach its final form until Ezra. Mm -hmm. I think that's hard to deny. I mean, you're just going to have changes in language. Languages need to be updated through the audience. It's just is going to happen. Uh, so that's generally the hypothesis I hold to. And, 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 and so I'm going to do one video on generally critiquing the documentary hypothesis. Um, then I'm going to do a specific video on the flood account and why that is not a J and a P source. I think that is just oh. a flood account that's been included in there, not two sources combined. There's a lot of yeah. stuff I want to talk. There's a lot of stuff I want to talk about on that. I want to really challenge that view. Uh, I'm also going to talk about some little things here and there conditionally. I might do one on the plague narrative and why that's not two separate accounts. Might do one on the Korah rebellion. I might probably gonna do one on Joseph being sold in slavery, the two alleged two creation accounts for sure. So there's a lot I want to talk about on this. I might even do a specific video called the reliability of Deuteronomy, uh, but I need to study more on that before I do that. So a lot to talk about on there, but yeah, that's generally the hypothesis I hold to. I do not think it was all written by Moses. It was, it was supplemented and updated over time. That's generally the view I hold to. And I think there's a lot of good data that points to that, well, but I'll be yeah, quoting up from a ton of books. Oh, sorry. I do that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, like, hard. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I mean, I read, I mean, I read Jeffrey Tege's book, Empirical Models for Biblical Criticism, which argues for the documentary hypothesis. And then after that, I read Empirical Models Challenging Biblical Criticism, which challenges Jeffrey Tege's book. Um, so there's a lot of really cool data to use for that. Yeah, there's one crippling piece of evidence against Moses writing all of it, and that's him writing about his own death. Um, well, yeah. <laughs> so and he also be. wrote in numbers that Moses was the most humble man ever. Well, Moses, you sure are. Yes, you are. You are the most humble. I'm the most humble man in the room. Um, yeah, that's uh, I yeah, that's I am so looking forward to, especially the Deuteronomy. I am going to be stoked when you do that. And one of the reasons is a lot of people don't realize that Deuteronomy is one of the most directly or indirect, indirectly quoted books by Jesus. Jesus mm -hmm. almost predominantly taught from Deuteronomy and I believe Isaiah. That was the two. Um, was it Isaiah? I think it was Isaiah. I know Deuteronomy for sure. But there were two books that Jesus quoted almost exclusively throughout all of his teachings and the sermons and things like that. So, uh, and I would think, you know, given De Deuteronomy, it's a, one of the most boring books along with Leviticus about <laughs> why it would be so important. But mm -hmm. um, that's where, uh, that's what Jesus is. So man, yeah, I'm totally stoked. I'm, I'm going to hop over there and um, start checking out some of these episodes uh, because it's something I was interested in. Uh, for a while and there just was there was so much arguing and i couldn't find a good place for somebody to kind of put these things together um so i'm excited to learn about that um, yeah i will say that today there are more biblical maximalists than there have been for a while so there's more scholars coming out there taking a more maximalist approach to the bible thinking that maybe what it records is 
actually a, a more history and not myth. A minimalist mm -hmm. says more of its myth. The maximalist says more of its history. And there's and the maximalist camp, camp is rising right now. Uh, it's not a majority. It's not a majority. Let's be clear on that. It's not a majority right now. I won't, um, but I think I'm, I'm a maximalist because I think the evidence supports it. Um, I think I've not, I have read some replies to Kenneth Kitchen's book on the reliability of the Old Testament, and it just seems like they're just missing. They're not getting his points when they're replying yeah. to some of the stuff. He goes through and makes this cumulative case for the Old Testament in a way that no one has done before him. And it's like people just sort of miss his point on a lot of things, and they don't really get the cumulative case approach he's going on. But he does right. stuff for like even the time period of Abraham. A lot of great stuff for that. Have you listened to any of uh, Dr. Kip Davis's thoughts on it? Um, on which, what? Uh, about the Exodus and. Um, the, I, know, I listened to his videos on the documentary hypothesis. Or documentary hypothesis. Yeah, I'm sorry. That's Yeah, it, yeah, it was. I, I, I definitely do not agree, especially when it comes to Genesis 10. Mm -hmm. uh, I do not think there's a documentary hypothesis of Genesis 10. Like it's supposedly a J and a P source. No. Um, I don't think, again, I don't think there's a lot of good evidence for it when you start getting into it. And I'm, I'm going to be relying on scholars like David Carr, um, the book, a bit, I forget the name of the author, but it's his, his, his name, last name is Person. I think it's Raymond Person. Uh, he wrote the book, uh, he wrote some of the chapters in the book, uh, Empirical Models Challenging Biblical Criticism, as well as Benjamin Kilker, Joshua Berman. I, I mean, there's a lot of, Here's the thing. I, I emailed a couple of scholars that wrote books challenging the documentary hypothesis. And I said, this was a good book. Where are the replies to this? And three, three scholars I asked this said, it's been mostly ignored. Like there's not, there's not wow. been a lot of challenges to their challenges to the documentary hypothesis, which, wow. which is, which is weird. And I, like, I don't know if I can say their names, but I, I did. I talked to three different scholars and they were, well, I can say one, Joshua Berman says it in his book directly, Inconsistencies in the Torah. He says, quite frankly, Gordon Wenham responded to this many years ago, and he was virtually ignored, except by one guy. And then Gordon Wenham and myself have responded to him and showed it's all wrong. So come on. Like, why are the, yeah. why is the criticism of this being ignored? Hmm. Yeah, I was going to say that one guy you're trying to think of, um, he's some person. Um Each <laughs> person. I can get his name here in a second. It's his person junior. Is his, he wrote uh, one of the authors of that book? Yeah, that's my dad joke for the day. I'm a dad. I get to say those <laughs> awful, terrible jokes. Yeah, Raymond F. Person Jr. He actually responds directly <laughs> to Joel Baden in his, his chapter. I'm just glad you grabbed it immediately. It was because sometimes those horrible jokes don't land well, and they're like, "Huh, what?" <laughs> we did have a last second question here. I think it's a pretty decent question. Do you think the dominant secularist culture warps the academic views on the Old Testament? Uh, I mean, that's hard to deny. It is. I just did a video recently called Are Christian Scholars More Biased? Or Are Christian Scholars Biased? Uh, and I went through all the data says, well, yes, they are, but so are secular scholars. Here's the data showing that. Look, everyone's got presuppositions they argue from. It's called a horizon. We all have a horizon Amen. we argue from. Amen. It just is what it is. And secular worldviews can warp the way they view the Bible, just like a Christian worldview can warp the way you view the Bible. It's just the way it is. Mm -hmm. Secular, I'm, I'm sick and tired of secular, you know, just talking about how Christians are just biased. They, they're going to read the Bible through a biblical lens. Well, you can read the Bible through an anti-biblical lens. You, you're going to read through your own worldview. It just, it is what it is. Deal with it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really um, a self-defeating claim. 
because it's easy to just flip it around and say the same thing. And regardless of what somebody thinks about um, Mike Lincona, going through his uh, book on the evidence for the resurrection at the beginning of it, one of the things he says in there that he explains extremely well, and I think he's 100% spot on, and that is there is no such thing as objectivity in a vacuum. We all, and I'm paraphrasing, and we, we all have our own biases, hidden biases, presuppositions. And until people can acknowledge that, then you can't confront them and try to be as objective as possible if you don't even know that you have these biases. So when I hear people say, oh, I don't have presuppositions, I don't have biases, I'm like, you're not even going to be able to, to objectively, as you want to say, evaluate it unless you realize that you do have them and try to put them aside. Yeah, I mean, I did a video called Our Atheist Bias, and I mentioned a study in there that shows that if you are saying you're not biased, it actually reveals up in research that you are more biased than people who admit they're biased. Well, but they're not monolithic, and they don't have a book. They all agree on it. Never mind. I'm not even <laughs> it's, it's typically, what do you mean, atheists? We're just like, uh, no, I got a lot of atheist friends, and thank God most of mine are, are pretty charitable and, and uh, great people to, to talk with and good pushback. Um, so I got a couple questions that, uh, these are probably going to be one of the hardest is, um, when you're studying, what kind of music you listen to lately, whatever, uh, whenever, what's your electronic, favorite electronic or instrumental type stuff? Really? Yeah. I, I like AU five surprisingly, um, or, or faint. Um, I don't know. That's just what I'm into, I guess. What do you, when you're ready to just tear stuff up, what do you get down with? That probably electronic stuff. I, guess. <laughs> I, I don't know. I like, I'm, I'm just very much more into the electronic stuff now, I guess. Uh, yeah, it's, um, my wife is, she's originally from South Florida. So anything that's uh, techno, electronic, dance, any of that, she's like all on board for it. Um, yeah. I have a weird music that I listen to when I'm studying or, or reading things and going through. I'll actually put on trap instrumentals because I just <laughs> love the little, you know, because you can find some good slow ones. It's just kind of mellow. And, you know, um, what is, uh, what would be your favorite dessert? What do you like most that you just can't hold yourself back from? Scotch. <laughs> that is the best answer from anybody I've had on here uh, anytime. And for the record, I, you bourbon, know what? That's a dessert for me now. I'm old. I will drink scotch as a dessert. It is lovely. You, you keep saying you're old. I don't think you're older than I am. How old are you? 43. Okay, then I'm not. But I feel my back <laughs> says I'm 80. So, well, I appreciate that. I was I was hoping that you proved me wrong on that. But okay, that, that backfired. Um, so go ahead and give everybody a plug, uh, uh, about your channel, what you're working on, anything you want to share with them. Yeah. So a video coming, uh, my channel is inspiring philosophy. You can check me out. Uh, I've got a video coming out on the sins of Ravi Zacharias this Friday. Uh, I have a video coming out later this month on did Jesus name the wrong Zachariah uh, in the book of Matthew, son of Barakiah, uh, did he get the wrong high priest? Did he named the confused the prophet and the high priest. I'm going to argue no. 
and then I have my video on the conquest coming out, a video on did Joshua think the sun was going to actually stood still in Joshua 10? I'm going to argue no, there were misunderstanding the cultural context there. Joshua did not say the sun stood still. Then now comes my series on the documentary hypothesis. Probably do a video uh, challenging an, an argument for atheism called the meager moral fruits argument after that. Uh, so a lot of good stuff coming out. Nice, nice. Well, I appreciate you coming on here and spending time with us and, and going through all of this with us. And uh, maybe in the future, uh, kind of when you drop part three, we can maybe have another show to, to talk about it. Uh, so yeah, thank you so much for you. coming on. Yeah, appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Everybody uh, that tuned in, thank you so much. Don't forget to like, subscribe, share. Uh, it's a podcast is on all major platforms. And I do have a, I'm trying to work on a show Thursday. I'm hoping that it, that it comes up. Uh, and I've got Alex Malpass coming on. Um, Stephen Law. Um, I got a few names that, that's kind of cranking out. So make sure you guys stick around for that. Have a good one.